This is an MPT Magazine podcast. For more information, find us online at www.mptmagazine.com. Welcome to this launch of our 50th anniversary anthology, Centres of Cataclysm. We're really delighted to be celebrating in the chapel at King's. As Ruth has said, MPT has a a long relationship with with King's. Uh, The college was a home for MPT, and the archive is still here. And we began working on this anthology in the King's College archives over a year ago. Modern Poetry and Translation was founded in 1965 by Ted Hughes and Daniel Weisbort. Ted Hughes had long been thinking about a magazine that would publish insistent poetry from around the world, and he was not alone. In a retrospective piece about the founding of the magazine, he wrote, but when the wave arrived and the passionate international fair commenced, suddenly almost all the poets of this generation found that the dull isolations of the 50s had been imposed on them and that they were all interested in the same thing, translating the poetry of other languages. Everything happened then at heady speed. Daniel Weisbord, with his enthusiasm, his network of Eastern European poets, his careful taste and his persistence, was the catalyst for Ted Hughes' dream. The two men published the first issue of this quietly revolutionary magazine in 1965, at the very height of the Cold War, and they included work in the first issue by Miroslav Holub, Vasco Popper, Andrei Vosnesensky, Czesław Milos, and others. In the editorial to the first issue, they noted, while we had material coming from many other areas of the world, it was that which came from Eastern Europe, which was somehow the most insistent. It is this region which has been at the center of cataclysm. When David and Helen Constantine, the former co-editors of Bond Poetry and Translation, and I began to consider how to mark this important anniversary, 50 years is a really long time for a poetry magazine. I think the only other magazine in the UK which has a longer life is Poetry Review. We knew we wanted to put together a book to mark some of the ex- excellent work that had been published. And, uh, and much of it was the first ever publication, writers like Amichai, um, like Holub, who went on to be completely established in a British poetry landscape. We thought a lot about the shape of the anthology and the presentation of the poems. It seemed to us that a book could follow a sort of poetic shape, really, the shape of a centre, this idea of a centre of cataclysm, centre of war, revolution, genocide, all the ills of our, of our age, which would then radiate out in zones, zones like migration, exile, the art and practice of translation, right out to something on the edge which would be about protecting and saying the human. It's quite a sort of idiosyncratic shape, but it seemed to us to best express the work that had been published in modern poetry and translation over that 50 years, and also to highlight some of the links some of the resonances between the poems. The anthology is profoundly dynamic in its shape. It's got movement built into it. It moves outwards from horror to hope, from cataclysm to calm recollection. It's a really huge book, as you'll see, as you'll, you, you may have read it. It contains some wonderful work, as you'll hear tonight. 
but it's a very small fraction of the 7,000 poems that modern poetry has translated over 50 years. Nevertheless, this book holds the poems we couldn't have done without, poems by Paul Celan, by Ingeborg Bachmann, by Haidzi, by Euphrasie Kezilahabi, Marina Tsvetaeva, Kim Hai-sun, Angelica Freitas, Ma Ai, the list goes on and on. It's poetry at the top of its game, poetry that really affects you, changes your life, and I hope you'll feel the same. Tonight we welcome poets and translators who will share with you their contribution to the anthology. I'll introduce the first four speakers and they'll speak then, read their poems without interruption. First of all, Paul Batchelor. Paul is a poet and translator. He teaches creative writing at Durham University and his most recent full collection, The Sinking Road, was published in 2008 by Blood Axe. It was described in Poetry Wales as having the freshness of a first collection, but with the sub substance and imaginative range of a poet in full voice. A pamphlet, The Love Dog, was published by Clutag in 2014. Paul's translations have won the Stephen Spenderite Award and have been published on several occasions in Modern Poetry and Translation. Paul is followed by Ruth Fainlight, a very long-term friend of Modern Poetry and Translation, Ruth's translations appear in modern poetry translation as early as 1972, and again more recently. Ruth was born in New York, but has lived in Europe most of her life. She's published numerous collections of poems, opera libretti, and fiction. A.S. Byatt said of her poems that they give us truly new visions of usual and mysterious events. In translation, Ruth's name has been associated with Spanish, Latin American, and Portuguese writers, including Sofia de Mello Brenna, more recently with our mutual friend, the Russian poet Marina Bradinskaya. Tim Allen is a poetry translator and another very long-term friend of MPT. It's a really brilliant community. People who become involved with MPT stick around. Tim was born in Liverpool in 1960, and as a former aid worker, he lived in many parts of the world, including Liberia, Sierra Leone, Mozambique, and Peru. He's translated translations, he's translated poems from several languages, including Spanish and Vietnamese. In 2008, he won a Stephen Spender Prize. And last in this section, Helen Constantine will read from the anthology, the work of Ingeborg Bachmann. Helen, as I'm sure you know or have realized by now, was the co-editor of Modern Poetry and Translation with David and one of the co-editors of Centers of Cataclysm. She's also a translator from French and Greek and has edited and published many, many translations of French prose. Most recently, an excellent new translation of Flaubert's Sentimental Education. Please welcome Paul Batchelor. Thank you, and a big thank you to Sasha, David, and Helen for inviting me here tonight and for publishing my work in MPT and now in this fantastic anthology. Um, seeing my uh, work in MPT, especially this first translation that I managed to place there, which is from Ovid, uh, from Tristia, um, really meant more to me than any other publication. It just felt like I'd made it through to some vast and very interesting conversation and uh, it's just wonderful to to be in this anthology be my desert island poetry magazine i'm sure 
which are all sensible and nice people. Um, this is from Ovid um, Tristia. These are the poems that Ovid wrote um, after he'd been sent into exile by Augustus Caesar in AD 8. And um, they're poems of lament, uh, veiled complaint. Uh, he sometimes implores um, Caesar for forgiveness uh, and so on. And sometimes he sounds a little defiant. So I'm just going to read three uh, short sections uh, from that sequence, Tristia. My friend, until you have been cursed to wander kinless, foreign lands where range barbarians so foul the farmer goes with a machete strung across his back simply to milk his kind. You cannot know time's secret ministries. How it can crawl like a disease that steals so sly upon a man he barely feels its subtle victories or like an army marching at half speed. It's true, I have bogged down in this forgotten outpost. Do not upbraid narrowness of theme. I never wrote to better purpose than when I implore Augustus to be merciful. Tristus Lupus. I fall asleep among the men and hear the voice of Erisython carry over the trembling water. Hear him hawk his trembling daughter, watch him cadge a plate of food. Hear him howl as wolves grown fearful leave off hunting to watch each other starve. I need no Oread to tell me exile is a parable of my oppressor's anger. When I imagined Scythia, the permafrost, where hunger scavenges, I knew how finely calibrated a deadfall I had found. Fate licked her teeth. I woke among the keening wolves. The gods flee to the stars, where they become daft stories poets use to show their mastery of form and exercise in rhyme. Perhaps a corner yet remains in Rome that holds in reverence the name of one who versed with bite. Wherever poets meet, let the best chair stand empty. Let them remember Nasso, who would not stoop to wring old metre from a heathen tongue, who shamed the gods with his inventions and found men less forgiving. I'm going to read a poem by Marina Boroditskaya, a Russian poet who has so many good things to be said about her. She's absolutely charming woman. She's a very good poet. She has been very friendly and helpful to me and she's translated quite a lot of my poetry. And I wish that I could have, well, perhaps I'll translate more, but I haven't translated as much of hers as she has of mine, definitely not. She's especially known as a poet who writes poems for children. 
she refuses to recognise a difference between poetry written for children and poetry written for adults. And I think she's quite right. This one, I think this will give you an idea. You'll see why I say how lovely she is. It's called So Much Gentleness from Unknown Men. So much gentleness from unknown men for no particular reason. Once in Paris, a waiter turned to me, Cherie, don't forget your cigarettes. And in a London market, when I wanted to buy a Beatles record, the stallholder sighed. What can I do, love, if the price goes up again? In New York airport, an old black man took me to the right gate, saying, don't panic, baby, just follow me. And I followed in his footsteps. So much kindness from strange men. Why the hell should I need more? Lie peaceful in your oyster pearl. Stay calm, moon, in the heavens. Thank you. Good evening. I'm going to read um, two pieces by Ho Chi Minh. And of course, the man that we know as Ho Chi Minh, that was not his real name. In the early 1940s, Vietnam was occupied, well, originally by the, the French, as part of French Indochina. And then the Japanese invaded. And when the Japanese invaded, Ho Chi Minh went to China to try to make common cause with the Chinese socialists. To cross the border, he needed a false name. So he chose the name Ho Chi Minh, and that is the name which stuck with him for the rest of his life. He didn't meet the socialists when he got across the border. He was arrested by the nationalists and he, he spent the next 15 months in, in jail. So he wrote a prison diary. He could not have written in Vietnamese because the Chinese guards could not understand Vietnamese and they would have confiscated it as, as spying. Um, so instead he wrote in Chinese. And Again, writing in Chinese about the conditions in the prison would have been difficult, but he realized that if he wrote in, in quatrains, in classical Chinese quatrains, the prison guards would respect that it was poetry, you can't touch poetry, you'll be okay with that. So Ho Chi Minh managed to document his 15 months in a Chinese prison in, in really quite beautiful uh, Chinese quatrains. I'm going to read um, two of his pieces here, one from his early stay and then one after he is liberated. So the first one is called Entertainment. Half a bucket of water a day, it's up to us whether we drink it or wash. Clean your face and you'll go thirsty. You can tell a tea drinker by his grime. Each meal is a bowl of rust-coloured rice. No salt, no greens, not even a ladle of soup. Each prisoner must smuggle in food to eat or else pine for his mother's cooking. 
After supper, while the sun sinks, songs spring out of the silence. And from the darkness of Jingxi District Prison appears a little music school. A prisoner blows on his flute till it keens and it weeps and it fills the convict's ears and hearts and it lilts beyond the prison walls, crossing hills and streams to where a woman looks out from the door of her hut, watching the skyline. We teach each other chess. The knight leaps, the bishop slants. There is a constant swiftness of attack and defence. Think carefully, plan your strategy. When the time is right, attack and attack. Make a wrong move and both castles are useless. Choose your moment and a pawn can turn the game. The sides are evenly matched, but only one player wins. Advance swiftly, retreat wisely. You will be known as a great commander. And the second piece is called Liberation. It's right from the end of the, the prison diary. Everything changes. That's a universal law. One week of rain, then the sun comes out and the earth slips off its wet clothes. And for a thousand miles, the world springs back to life. Warm sun, cool breeze, blooms and blossom, birdsong in the trees. Bitter days are followed by sweet. That's a universal law. Everything changes. The old poets sang of moonlight and rain, of snowstorms and mist over hills and streams. But my poems are made of steel, and each verse is an act of resistance. read a poem <clears throat> called Days in White by Ingeborg Bachmann, the Austrian poet and novelist. Uh, it's translated by Daniel Hughes, the Welsh expert in, in manuscripts, and he was uh, a friend of MPT right from the beginning. He was a friend of Ted Hughes and, uh, and Daniel, Danny Weisbord. Uh, so he was in at the beginning, and he is still in, because he's still a great supporter of MPT. Um, we are very lucky to have with us tonight, and very honoured, to have Heinz Bachmann, who is Ingeborg's uh, brother. And um, I'd like to say tonight that we are very, very grateful to him for all the support he's given to MPT, especially for letting us publish the, the war diaries and the other poems. Days in white. These days I get up with the birches and comb the wheat hair from my forehead in front of a mirror of ice. Mixed with my breath, the milk flakes. So early it frosts up. 
And where I breathe on the pain appears, drawn by a childish finger, once more your name, innocence, after so long. These days, it doesn't pain me that I'm able to forget and have to remember. I'm in love. To white heat, I love and give thanks with angelic greetings. I learnt them in flight. These days, I think of the albatross with whom I soared up and over to an undescribed country. There, on the horizon, brilliant in its destruction, I'm aware of my fabulous continent that dismissed me in a shroud. I'm alive, and from afar, I hear its swan song. presence looms quite large in this anthology with several editorials and prose excerpts on the manner and matter of translation and editing but we're very proud of a section of the whole anthology which exemplifies the spirit of MPT and the way in which translations and the act of translation become a sort of chain reaction and we'll hear from Ted Hughes and from work from this section now. In 1963, an anthology of Hungarian poetry was published, um, the, the Pen and the Plough, which included Ferenc Juhács's much-admired poem, The Boy Changed into a Stag, Clamours at the Gate of Secrets, in a translation by Kenneth McRobbie. Ted Hughes read that translation and made a version of the poem himself, and the circumstances of this translation um, were described by Daniel Weisbord and are included in the anthology as well. The, the, the actual poem, the version uh, by Hughes, was not published until um, after Ted Hughes's death in an MPT which was dedicated to Hughes's translation work. Ted Hughes's poem, or his version, powerfully affected another poet, Pascal Petit, who wrote her own uh, poem called At the Gate of Secrets, and finally, Tara Bergen, a Ted Hughes scholar and a very fine poet, wrote another poem which came from that chain, really. She'd read Pascal's, she'd read the original, she'd read Ted Hughes's version. So the section in the anthology, which has all those poems, is really a very living example of how poetry in translation works to affect our own poetic culture. Tonight we'll hear an excerpt of Ted Hughes's poem, and it's read by the very distinguished actor, David Bradley. We invited David to come and read this poem on the advice of Carol Hughes, who's also with us tonight. Carol, Ted Hughes's widow, told us that David was one actor that Ted loved to hear read his poetry, and David was uh, an actor in the production of Fedra, um, Ted Hughes's translation of Fedra. Um, so I'd like to welcome David Bradley. The mother 
called after her son from the far distance. The mother called after her son from the far distance. She went out in front of the house calling and she loosened her hair's thick knot which the dusk wove to a dense stirring veil. A valuable robe sweeping the earth wove to a stiff and heavily flaring mantle. A banner for the wind with ten black tassels. A shroud, the fire-slashed, blood-heavy twilight. She twisted her fingers among the fine tendrils of the stars. The moon's suds bleached her features, and she called after her son, shrilly, as she called him long ago, a small child. She went out from the house, talking to the wind, and spoke to the songbirds, her words overtaking the wild geese going in couples to the shivering bulrushes, to the potato flower in its pallor, to the clenched, bald bulls rooted so deeply, to the fragrant, shadowy sumach. She spoke to the fish where they leaped playfully, to the momentary oil rings, mauve and fleeting. You birds and branches, Hear me, listen as I cry. Listen, you fishes and you flowers. Listen, I cry to be heard. Listen, you glands of the pumping soils, you vibrant fins, you astral seeding parachutes. Decelerate, you humming motors of the saps. Screw down the whining taps in the depth of the atom. All iron pelvis virgins. Sheep alive under cotton. Listen as I cry. I am crying out to my son. The mother called out to her son and let her cry climb in a spiral. Within the gyre of the cosmos it ascended, her limbs glancing in the light rays like the skid scaled flanks of a fish or a roadside boil of salt or crystal. The mother called out to her son, come back, my own son, come back, I am calling your calm harbour. Come back, my own son, come back, I am calling your pure fountain. Come back, my own son, come back, I am calling the breast where your memory sucked. Come back, my own son, come back, I am calling your almost sightless lamp. Come back, my own son. For this world of spiky objects has put out my eyes. My eyes are sealed under yellow-green bruises. My jaw contracts, my thighs and my shins are skinned. From every side things batter in on me like crazed rams. The gate, the post, the chair try their horns on me. Doors slam against me like drunken brawlers. The vicious electricity snaps at me. My scaling skin leaks blood, a bird's beak crushed with a rock. Scissors slither off like spider crabs of nickel. The matches are sparrow feet. The pail hacks back at me with its handle. Come back, my own son, come back. My legs no longer lift me like the young hind. Festering blooms open on my feet. Gnarled tubers screw into my purpling thighs. The skin over my toes glazes to bone. My fingers harden. 
Already the flaking flesh shells off like slate from weathered geologic formations. Every limb has served its time and sickened. Come back, my own son, come back, for I am no longer as I was. I am a used-up shadow from the inner visions that flare through the thickening organs like an old cock's crowing on winter dawns, from a fence of shirts hanging, bored frozen. I am calling your own mother. Come back, my own son, come back. Force new order onto the anarchic things. Discipline the savage objects. Tame the knife and domesticate the comb, because now I am only two gritty green eyes, glassy and weightless like the dragonfly, whose winged nape and moth that you know so well so delicately clasp two crystal apples in the green illuminated skull. I am two staring eyes without a face, seeing all and one with unearthly beings. Come back, my own son, come back into place with your fresh breath Bring everything again to order, into place. In the remote forest, the boy heard. He jerked his head up in an instant, his spread nostrils testing the air, his soft dewlap throbbing, his veined ears pointing totally to that lamenting music as to the still tread of the hunter as to hot wisps fronding from the cradle of a forest fire when the skyline trees smoke and begin to whimper bluely. He turned his head to the old voice, and now an agony fastens on him, and he sees the shag hair over his buttocks, and he sees on his bony legs the cleft hooves that deal his track, sees where lilies look up in pools, low-slung hair pursed black balls. He forces his wary towards the lake, crashing the brittle willow thickets, haunches plastered with foam that spatters to on the earth at his every bound. His four black hooves rip him a path through a slaughter of wild flowers, sock a lizard into the mud, throat ballooned and tail sheared till he reaches the lake at last and looks in at its lit window that holds the moon, moving beech boughs, and a stag staring at him. For the first time, he sees the bristling pelt covering all his lean body, hair over knees and thighs, the transverse tasseled lips of his male purse, his long skull treed with antlers, bone boughs bursting to bone leaves, his face closely furred to the chin, his nostrils slit and slanted in. The great antlers knock against trees, roped veins lump on his neck. He strains fiercely, stamping. He tries to put out an answering cry, but in vain. It is only a stag's voice belling in the throat of this mother's son. And he scatters a son's tears, trampling the shallows to drive out that lake horror. Scare it down into the whirlpool gullet of the water dark, where glittering little fishes flicker their laces. Miniature bubble-eyed jewelry. The ripples smooth off into the gloom. But still, a stag stands in the foam of the moon.
Um, what follows is a sort of party game, really. I'm now going to introduce five people, and they will come up when I've done the five introductions, and then you have to remember what I said about, about each. They're all good. That's the thing that uh, they have in common. Uh, the first is Christina Viti, and she's going to be reading one of, I think it's five poets. She's supplied translations of to modern poetry and translation. She's not only a frequent, a constant translator to a contributor to the magazine, but everything that Christina does has a peculiar sort of intensity coupled with precision, which we've always found absolutely compelling and rather unsettling. Christina. The second reader will be Jack Mapanji, whom I was with last night celebrating friendship, poetry, and in the context actually of tyranny, because like Ho Chi Minh, Jack was imprisoned for rather longer actually, and I think on the whole one could say by jailers less enlightened than Ho Chi Minh's. Um, he had, however, they had in these awful conditions, a character who went by the name of Noriega, which is a very sort of inauspicious name, in that we chiefly remember a Noriega, who was for a while a pal of the USA and of the CIA, and then when he was no use to them, they got rid of him. In Panama, he uh, featured quite a long time in a very brutal fashion. The Noriega in Jack's prison, however, was a sort of genial, gifted, and extremely humane go-between between between the outside world and the prisoners. And he smuggled stuff in at great risk to himself in his clothing. One of the prisoners remarked, that man's pure poetry, because he had creaky shoes. And you knew when you heard the creaky shoes approaching you in the kitchen or the jail itself, the prison cell itself, that he was either coming to warn you to hide everything he'd already offered you in the cracks in the wall, or bringing you yet again something good. He was known as Noriega, but Jack says in this, in a prison memoir, which you should all get your hands on if you can, and crocodiles are hungry at night. In that memoir, he thinks that a better name for this chap would have been Kali Kalanji, and that's the bit of the poem that Jack is going to read us from. Um, a kind of trickster, a Malawi good spirit, described as the all-knowing, the already fried one. That is a person of immense knowledge and um, skill at survival, which was necessary. Our third reader is Bob Hull, and Bob very kindly sent to Helen and me lately his latest book, which is, has the good title of How to Speak to Your Head Teacher. Um, he characterizes that book as for young readers, and it's very much like with Marina Boroditskaya. Effectively, there is no such division in the work of, I think, good poets who write for children and for adults. It's true that um, Bob has had a long career in education, helpfully writing in education about the reading and the writing of poetry. But he's also a person of whom I've said and will say again that he has his own tone of voice, which is equally evident in his own poems as it is in his translations. Shash Trevitt is the fourth reader in this little group, now living in York but uh, came to the United Kingdom from Sri Lanka in 1987 to escape the civil war there. And Shash, f 
for many years says she stopped speaking and writing in Tamil because the language itself had become a horror to her. And she's now started to try to write in it again, rather successfully, I would say, on the evidence of her poems in this book. Um, one of the things which is most moving and true, true because moving, moving because so true, about modern poetry and translation is the connections all the way down the 50 years that we have here, Heinz and Bachmann back then and Bachmann presently, but also kinds of translators. And Shash belongs in a long and very honourable tradition of people working, first of all, with very great pain between two languages. Right back to Michael Hamburger, who got out of Germany with his family in 1933, and by the age came out then by the age of 17, that is 1940, when he was on the verge of joining the British Army. He was already master enough in the English language, which he didn't previously have, after seven years, yearning, to translate Hölderlin. And that's a man who thereafter operated between the two languages. Um, closer to Shash is perhaps a, a young woman, latterly, Carmen Bugan, who came out of Romania expelled finally after her father had been imprisoned for a long time and maltreated and came out safely into the USA then into the United Kingdom with a hatred of the language, a sworn enemy of the language that had done so much damage to her family, particularly to her father and now writes chiefly in English. Perhaps it will come back eventually. And finally in this group, Francis Leviston, um, a fine, fine poet in her own writer, first um, volume, first collection, Public Dream, came out in 2006 and was a, a runner-up in three major prizes. Uh, the poem that she's going to read that's in this anthology is actually, again, something that we think of as translation is quite often doing. It's a sort of uh, the rebuilding. It's about the ruin, and Anglo-Saxon ruin, and in many ways, um, the act of translation rebuilds things. If you think of... Uh, Fragments by Sappho, the way they've been reconstructed into poems in translation, like making something out of it. Um, necessary, peculiarly necessary in, in, in the rather frightful times we're in when you think of what's happened recently to Palmyra, the destruction there, and whether a facsimile of the things is quite as good as what was there. Thank you.
and a priest. He was also um, he served in the First World War as an officer. Um, but what I like and I want to bring uh, about him, the reason why I decided to translate him, is this voltage, this white hot energy that he had. He was a contemporary, don't forget, of uh, the futurists, of D'Annunzio, of that uh, 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 movement, if you like, in Italy that identified energy with the war. By energy, he could burn at the very same intensity or higher, but he chose peace and he chose service. And I think that's what we need. Um, I don't want to talk about what I tried to do with the translation, but since it's a very short work, I will read uh, the original first. Voce di vedetta morta. C'è un corpo in poltiglia con crespe di faccia affiorante sul lezzo dell'aria sbranata. Frode la terra. Forse è nato non piango a far di chi può e del fango. Però se ritorni tu, uomo di guerra, a chi ignora non dire. Non dire la cosa dove l'uomo e la vita si intendono ancora, ma afferra la donna. Una notte dopo un gorgo di baci, se tornare potrai. Soffiale che nulla del mondo redimerà ciò che è perso di noi, i potrefatti di qui. Stringe il cuore e strozzarla. E se t'ama, lo capirai nella vita. Più tardi, o già mai. Voice from a dead locant. A body pulp smashed. We surfacing with ripples of face and the stink of the air ripped my teeth. Earth of fraud. Fury wired. I won't weave. That's for those who can and for the mire. But if you return, a man from the war, don't go telling those who don't know. Don't go telling the same wherever man and life are speaking terms still, but get hold of a woman. One night after a maelstrom of kissing, if you come back at all, and hiss in her ear, no thing of this world will redeem what was lost of us, the putrefied of this place. Grip tight her heart till you but choke her. And if she loves you, you'll know that through life, much later, or never at all. It's an honor to be invited to this launch. Um, it's an honor also to have this lovely book, Anthology, um, inscribed as it were by a 
typical African story, which is uh, unusual. When I wrote this story, I was um, I had gone through a whole system of communication through my verse. I've moaned about dictators, I've moaned about despots of all sorts, I've moaned about colonialists and, and exiles, and I decided that having written six books about those plus, uh, plus a memoir which David was talking about, I thought I should uh, write for children. And then I took a typically African story, which is a fireside story in Malawi, Mozambique, and Tanzania. And the section that I'm going to read, which Sasha uh, was kind enough to publish for me initially, and now it comes here, is the story of a little young man. We don't even know whether he is young man or is child or is, is an animal or is human or whatever. But the section I'm reading, and I only read a little section, is this is a young man who is born knowing the future, knowing the present, knowing the past. Um, and um, all the animals, are trying to get rid of him, they can't because he knows there's tricks. And this section where um, I'm going to read, he's talking about his birth. Nobody seems to know how he was born. And he declares that he is born in various ways, but in fact, is it true? Galikalange of Ostrich Forest. Galikalange, diminutive, already fried one. My name is Galikalange, son of Alange and Likalange, both of Lange, a village that stood by the woods of ancient ostrich forest from the beginning of time. How I came into the world, birth elders amongst the Yao peoples of Malawi, Mozambique, Tanzania, where my tale is told by the father, have numerous varying accounts. Some claim Kadikalanje leapt up to his mom's womb of his own accord and landed straight onto her frying pan, there to turn himself over and over again until her groundnut oil fried him clean and dry. Others attest, we pulled out Kadikalanje from his mom's belly and place him on her pan to fry clean and dry. Yet others assert, we saw Kadikalange kicking about the grass and wattle beds of ancient ostrich forest. We picked him up and restored him to his mom's glory. Though later, 
he jumped onto her palm, palm and to fry clean and dry. Some bathers dance before they declare, we extracted Kalikalanji, God's diminutive already fried one, not from his mom's womb, not from his mom's belly, nor did we pick him from grass and water beds of ostrich forest. Truly but truthfully, we extorted Kalikalanji from his mom's knee. Then he jumped onto her pan to fry clean and dry. Some among such elders fiercely protest, no, we extract Kalikalanji not from his mom's knee, but from her big toe. Then we gave him liberty to jump into his mom's broiling pan to fry clean and dry. Others contend we run Kaligalanji, not from his mom's knee, nor from her big toe, but from her thumb. Then he leapt onto her pan, onto her pan to fry clean and dry. The accounts of the tale of my birth, the birth of Kaligalanji, God's already fried diminutive, are legion. And if some should acutely contradict others, that's the spirit of my tale. I'll stop there. I'm going to read um, a translation I did of a Greek poem by uh, Nikiforos Vretakos, whose life straddled most of last century. Born in 1912, uh, I think he died in about 1990-something. Um, like a lot of poets, he fell foul of the, the dictators and uh, he went in exile in about 1967, I think. I came across uh, Vretakos in a bookshop in Vathi about 20 years ago, I think. Um, and it was maybe only five, five or six years before that, I got <clears throat> completely hooked on Greek verse and um, bought a lot and wanted to hear it. I remember the times in the 70s when we had, in fact, I remember very clearly uh, enjoying Holub and uh, Herbert with some very bright sixth formers, that was marvellous. Ultimately, one wanted to hear the language as well as the translation. Anyway, uh, Greek took me a long time. Uh, I graduated from taking about 20 minutes to order a taxi on the other side of the road to being able to speak a little and certainly to read. Uh, Vratikos is not Britsos, not Kavafi, not, but he's a fabulous poet and uh, very beautiful poems, I think, often rather personal compared with the political stuff that Ritzos did. The Orange Trees of Sparta. I hope I'm audible back there. I hope I'm audible in the back. <laughs> it was your words whitened the orange trees, freighted their branches 
with love's flowers, with smoke. I filled my arms with them. I went home. My mother was sitting outside in the moonlight, fretting over me. This is what she said to me, scolding me, sitting out under the moon. It was only yesterday that I washed your hair. Only yesterday that I changed your dress for you. Where have you been? Who soaked your clothes with tears and filled your arms with the blossom of the bitter orange? and I'm, I have to acknowledge a connection I have with Jack who um, took pity on me when I was just starting out and very generously met me and very sternly told me that I have to start writing in Tamil and it's a language that I'd stopped speaking um, and dealing with since I was 13 and so it was a very big deal um, so this poem that I'm going to read to you called Bitter Waters was the first poem I wrote after meeting with Jack. And it's, um, I didn't write it in Tamil, but I thought in Tamil and wrote in English. Then I wrote in Tamil and then I retranslated to English. And it was a, it was a funny process, but I do owe this poem to Jack, so Jack, for you. Bitter Waters. See these lines on my upturned palm. They are the rivers of tears that have washed my face. They are the rivers of blood that have washed my land. Flowing first in trickles, then streams, then in torrents. They are the swell of voices that have cried out our shame. They lie etched on my skin coursing through the creases and ridges to pool into stories and tales. I shall tell of these for the generations to come. See these hands, all twisted and bent. These are the scars I bear instead of children. O oh, motherland, look not to me for your warrior. Thank you. Very, very glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to Sasha, um, David and Helen and everybody involved. This is a tremendous book and I'm going to really enjoy reading it over the next months, years. Um, I feel like a bit of an interloper being here this evening because I have translated exactly one poem um, and it was in MPT and it's in this book. So that's what I'm reading for you and I am in awe of all the people in the room who have dedicated their lives to the very difficult art of translation and who are much better and much more accomplished at it than I am. Um, this is, is a cheat in lots of ways, I think, um, hopefully not in the important way, but it's a translation from an Anglo-Saxon 
poem. So in a sense, it's not another language. It's just a very, very old version of English. Um, and it is a version. It's very much a version. Um, the Ruin is from the 10th century Exeter book. Um, and it's a poem written by an Anglo-Saxon poet, an anonymous poet. We don't know who this is. Um, in which they look at some Roman ruins, and scholars generally think they're the ruins um, at Bath, what the Romans would have called Aquaesulis. Um, and the Dark Age poet looks at these ruins and imagines what the Roman city must have been like. Um, and he is doing this at a point in time when the kind of building knowledge and expertise that enabled that city to exist have been lost with the departure of the Romans um, from the islands. The ruin in, in the one manuscript in which it survives has a, a diagonal burn mark through it. So there's this lovely extra layer of irony as well in dealing with that poem. The ruin is ruined. Uh, and as a translator, you have to decide whether you are going to fill in the bits that are missing or if you're going to leave the holes there uh, and which is the truer way of dealing with the poem. Um, I went back and forth on that for a long time, but in the end I decided that I did want to fill fill the holes in, as it were. Um, and the version of the poem that I've written is called Reconstruction, as David said. And that was part of why I wanted to call it that, because it, it did feel like a kind of a recuperation, a reconstruction of that text, or what that text might have been. Um, and it also was important to me as I was working on it to mirror the actions of the Anglo-Saxon poet looking back at Roman ruins and trying to imaginatively construct something in language that would approximate what that might once have been, um, to have then a contemporary poet looking back at the, this kind of textual ruin and trying to reconstruct that in turn. And that, I suppose, so far has been my experience of translation. Um, it's been very chronological like that, of kind of looking back uh, and trying to bring something forward as you look back and that kind of trafficking back and forth. Okay, um, so this is reconstruction. The future creates these fabulous blueprints from cities it pulls to the ground. What seems the work of giants lies diminished. Domes cave. Towers like telescopes collapse upon themselves. The icy gate like a berg breaks up and hoarfrost serves as poor man's grout. All promises of sanctuary disband into dust as the centuries pass. The earth's fist closes on the architects, cold and catacombed, its bloodless grip, while a hundred generations live above their heads. Here, for example, here stood a wall, bearded with lichen and swabbed with blood, not swayed by storms or the rise and fall of kingdom after kingdom. Tall or deep, it tumbled at last. Only thrown stones remain, moulded by the wind, going on milling against themselves down in the grass. Where once the light of knowledge lay across these fiddly crafts, mud crusts offer up proof of a mind that quickly wove its ringed design, and that someone sharp bound the wall braces together with wire. Think how intricate the city must have been. Archipelagos of bathing pools, bristling gables, 
the bored glint of swords on patrol and open casks at every corner, round which camaraderie spiralled like confetti orbiting a plug hole, until the future finished all that. Bodies piled three men deep for miles, a city of bones it must have been, and what disease bred in that grand decomposition claimed the remaining artisans. Time turned their temples into desecrated tombs. The whole endeavour came undone. Idols of clay and the talented hands that shaped them lay in bare, scratched graves. Fences flattened. This red, curved, ceremonial roof drops its tiles from the ceiling vault. Civilization falls to the floor in dribbling heaps, like everything else. Here, where many a man of the past, blazing with wine, blinding in the spoils of war, bounced his gaze from treasure to treasure, gold to silver, coins to trinkets, rings to cups, pinballing angles round the faceted rock of the mirrored enclosure's endless rain. Here, where stone buildings stood, flowing water threw out heat in massive clouds, and the mortar circled the known world within its embrace, where the baths lay, hot as hearts that prize their own convenience. Thank you to all those readers in the first section and, and, and the second. Um, the variety and the connections are extraordinary and they're not accidental for this evening but it's a tribute to the magazine itself to, be, to say that we could have put together a similar reading with such connections and with such extraordinary variety, a worldwide variety already and also down the centuries, that's a, a thing about MPT. I'm going to conclude now, we're going to conclude with something which is a very great pleasure to do, which is to thank Carol for being here. That's another of these immensely valuable connections like Heinz being here, like the mention of Daniel Hughes going right back. Um, those things matter to us enormously. And to be here in this place where the archive is, where MPT continued for decades with the work of good people keeping it alive in times which were not harder than now, let's not, let's not say, but not easy. Um, but in making this anthology, naturally, as we put it together and saw the shape of it and what was going to go in it, necessarily and with great pleasure, we turned to Carol to know whether this was going to be okay. And she was generous to a degree, extraordinary really. So the anthology comes into being because of her generosity and it needs saying that because not everybody is so generous Hughes, Ted Hughes <laughs> Ted Hughes as you know was the co-founder of Modern Poetry and Translation um, it was said of him and truly I think that he had a very great eye for knowing what people would be good at which is not just a way of, um, as it were, passing things on to other people, but he did know in Daniel Weisbrot, a person who would carry it on, 
when he didn't exactly leave it entirely, but he moved on to other things. And one of the other things that he moved on to was the founding of equal importance, almost, of, of Poetry International on the South Bank there, which is a physical bringing together of the people who had been in the magazine and others down the ages now who have been since and is a sort of physical location on the South Bank like the anthology itself. It's a sort of locus where these meetings take place. Had he only done those two things for poetry, founded the magazine and set up a, a festival which continues still as does the magazine in a particular place at a particular time, that would be quite an extraordinary achievement. But we've already heard in the readings that we've had, just what an extraordinary translator he also was in his idiosyncratic fashion, in a, in a, in a fashion which is idiosyncratic but so forceful, absolutely persuasive when you hear it so well read as we have, as we have tonight, and how it breeds then other, other versions, how one translation is productive of another. It's a great seed for, 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 for continuing. And of course, a poet through and through. And that's really, the, the anthology is there, it's not just as a celebration of Ted, clearly it isn't because of the variety, but, but he is at, at, at the centre of it and recurs, as it were, like a, a welcome leitmotif uh, throughout. Um, it turns out that the last poem that, that uh, Ted Hughes wrote, it seems, was itself a translation. It was published, a translation of Pushkin, in the Daily Telegraph, in the, about two, two and a half months after Ted Hughes's death. And it's an enormous privilege now to ask Carol to read this poem. Before reading it, I'd just like to say a little bit about uh, Ted and the friendship with Danny. Danny was a house guest at Court Green right through the 28 years that Ted and I were married. And the, the wonderful thing about Danny when he and Ted were together late at night was that from upstairs in the house I would hear this raucous laughter. And it was just like two six-formers just giggling away downstairs and goodness knows what they were talking about or reminiscing about. But it always, the house always rang with laughter when Daniel came to stay. So that was a great thing. In the last year, Ted and Danny were working on two things. They were also working on a selection of Yehuda Amichai's poetry, which I'm very happy to say Faber's published after Ted's death. So when Elaine Feinstein wrote to Ted, asking if he'd um, do a version of a Pushkin poem for the Pushkin anniversary, which was coming up the following year, um, Ted agreed, but it was only with the very able assistance of Danny's literals that came spewing out of our fax machine, which in those days was an old-fashioned one, so it was a waxy roll of paper. So this long roll of waxed literals would come pouring out of this machine, as Daniel and Valentina, I believe, was a great part in providing the literals. So again, that's a, a great sort of memory of the, the work they were doing together. So I'd like to read The Prophet now. Crazed by my soul's thirst through a dark land, I staggered, and a six-winged seraph halted me at a crossroads. With fingers of dream, he touched my eye pupils. My eyes, prophetic, recoiled like a startled eaglet's. He touched my ears, 
and a thunderous clangor filled them. The shudderings of heaven, the huge wingbeat of angels, the submarine migration of sea reptiles, and the burgeoning of the earth's vine. He forced my mouth wide, plucked out my own cunning, garrulous, evil tongue, and with bloody fingers between my frozen lips, inserted the fork of a wise serpent. He split my chest with a blade, wrenched my heart from its hiding, and into the open wound pressed a flaming coal. I lay on stones like a corpse. There God's voice came to me. Stand, prophet, you are my will. Be my witness. Go through all seas and lands. With the word, burn the hearts of the people. Thank you. I'd like to thank all the speakers here tonight for sharing all these wonderful treasures. And before we go on to, um, to have a glass of wine together, I'd like to mention a few people who've made this evening and the book possible. First of all, King's College and the English department, and particularly Ruth and Declan. I don't know, Declan and Ruth have been absolutely fantastic and gone well beyond the call of duty in trying to help us make this a really memorable evening. I'd be very grateful if you could thank them for me. Neil Astley, the editor of Blood Axe Books, isn't here tonight, but Neil has been extraordinary. His enormous patience and editorial wisdom smoothed the passage of the book into life, and we're very grateful to him. Towards the publication of the book, we received a grant from the Unwin Trust, and, and we also had a grant from an anonymous donor, which enabled us to do this evening's launch. I can't tell you what a labour of love this book is, and I would like to just very publicly thank my co-editors, David and Helen. You have no idea how many hours, how many, how many hours, how many months, weeks they put into it, and I'd just love to thank them properly. Contributors who gave their work so willingly and allowed us to reproduce it in the anthology for free, for free. And their generosity has meant that all the royalties from the anthology will be donated to the Refugee Council. There is now a, a very small reception. We hope you'll join us. And um, if you want to buy a copy of the anthology, over in the corner there, there's a bookstall and you can. You can buy a copy, but if you're a contributor, don't forget to pick up your free copy from Sarah. Um, we also have uh, some various bits and pieces. The MPT merchandising arm has gone into overdrive recently. We've got some lovely tote bags, but most beautiful of all, we've got some mugs with a cartoon on them by Ted Hughes of the MPT editor. And it's, it's so limited, I can't tell you. If you, go and get, if you don't get it tonight, that's it. <laughs> um, 
And last of all, we have some copies of the most recent issue of MPT, The Great Flight, which is dedicated to or features poetry about the refugee crisis. I should say, if you'd like to see MPT reach its 100th year, then there'd be no, no better way to show your support than take out a subscription to the magazine. It really is something quite extraordinary. There's something fantastic about it and the community around it. So, once again, thank you very much to all of you for coming, for the readers for reading, and have a glass of wine with us. <laughs>